0: Welcome to Crossroads, the broadcast ministry of Montgomery's First Baptist Church, where you can discover God's personal plan and power to conquer your problems through Jesus Christ. Join us now as God's Word heals, encourages, and enlightens your spiritual life. Come with me. Please join me in John, John chapter 2, verse 13, that this is that famous moment When Jesus cleanses the temple, it may also help you to find this little piece of paper entitled, You Are God's Temple. Um, I don't have that much to say, but when the Lord, the God, the Creator of the universe, your Redeemer and Sustainer speaks to you, you better get out a pencil and be ready to take notes because that is worth listening to. I heard a funny story about a group of University of Arkansas fraternity boys And they wanted to keep the Arkansas Razorback mascot in their fraternity house. Now, most of you know that the Arkansas Razorback is a hog, and his name is Tusk, Old Tusk. So they went to the Dean of Students and they made this proposal. They said, Dean, we would really like to keep Old Tusk in our fraternity house. And the Dean said, Well, that's a very noble request, but there's one problem. What about the smell? And the leader of the group said, Well, we think old Tusk will get used to it. <laughs> um, fraternity boys, and particularly hogs that like mud, are used to dwelling in dirty places, but not our holy God. You see, as we accompany Jesus to the temple of his day, we will learn a sterling and startling truth about our Savior. He will not dwell in a dirty place. And I want you to think deeply about the implications of this because we want to do something very important. Please make this note. Today as we follow Jesus to the temple, let's make some life-changing temple discoveries. I want to underline this bottom line truth. Let me say it again. In the Old Testament, God made a temple for His people. But in the New Testament, God made a people to be His temple. That's the essence of what it means, Christ is in us, the hope of glory. That was the magnificent obsession of the Apostle Paul. He realized that God was not distant and far away, but God, through Jesus, indwelt him. That's what Jesus promised his disciples as he departed. He said in John 14, 15, 16, don't be alarmed. Don't be worried. I am sending you my spirit. You will not be alone. And this is what we're going to focus on today, that we are the temple of God. My friend, you are God's temple. And that has very many important implications, responsibilities, and expectations. Uh, So, here's what I want us to do. Let's plunge into these life-changing truths and dig deep into them, beginning in verse 13 of John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. So, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers were seated. He made a scourge of cords or a whip and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered it, that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and they said to him, what sign do you show us, seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered, and He said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days. But He was speaking of the temple of His body. When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered what He said, and they believed the Scripture and the words which Jesus had spoken. Now, when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name, beholding His signs, which He was doing. But Jesus, on His part, was not entrusting Himself to them, for He knew all men. And because He did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for He Himself knew what was in a man. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to full attention right now as we intentionally step into Your holy presence. I ask that You would get me out of the way and release Your Holy Spirit to deposit Your transforming truth into every receptive heart. We ask for that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now, in all four Gospels, we find Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have it at the end of the ministry of Jesus, and John has it at the beginning. Most scholars believe that John's gospel is accurate, that Jesus came at the beginning of his ministry. He saw this egregious practice of people turning the worship of the Lord into a merchandising commercial enterprise, and Jesus cleaned house that three years passed, and they slowly gravitated back in, so he had to do it again. But there are many, many implications from this moment that apply directly to our life, because here is the great takeaway truth. Please embed this deep in your spirit. This changes everything. You are God's temple. That's the great takeaway. You are God's temple. So let's examine what Jesus did and said about the temple and uh, let's understand what He expects from us. Let's begin with number one, Jesus' attitude. Jesus' attitude. The first thing we notice is that Jesus expressed righteous indignation over what He found in His Father's house. Some see Jesus perhaps as a a weak, wimpy type person, always ultra-polite, always kind, never offending anybody. But certainly uh, that is not the case here. As a matter of fact, Jesus was a strong man. He was a strong man of personality. He was a strong man physically. And we see here Jesus getting good and angry. Now it's an interesting moment that uh, Jesus has come to the temple and He sees all these vendors, and they are ripping off, particularly the Gentile worshipers, and something arises in Jesus that you would call righteous indignation. He is angry. You may say, Time out, Jay. Uh, I thought the Bible says that to be angry was a sin. Well, it does say a certain type of anger is a sin, and the other anger is not. For instance, uh, in the book of Genesis, we learn that Cain was angry with his brother Abel, and the word there is thumas. It means boil. It means raging. Have you ever had that experience of somebody hurt you, they betrayed you, or maybe you just got a little bit of a hothead and they cut you off in traffic, and you just kind of like become Mount Vesuvius? Anybody in that category? You don't have to raise your hand, but uh, this is probably the wrong time to punch somebody in the ribs. Uh, but there is a thumas type of anger. Matter of fact, I just Googled road rage. Now, we're all aware of this phenomenon called road rage. It's nothing new, but I Googled road rage, and the first thing that popped up was a story of Tracy, Tracy Smith, and Matt Wilkes. Just a few weeks ago in Milwaukee, Tracy Smith who is a law enforcement officer was driving with her 16-year-old son teaching how to drive on the streets of Milwaukee. And this guy, Matt Wilkes, somehow cut in and bumped their car. Well, Tracy's a law enforcement officer. She jumped out and she said, you are a terrible driver. I'm trying to teach my son to drive and look what you've done. The man rolls down his window. Th- this fella, who is actually kind of a normative guy, he pulls out a 9 millimeter pistol and he shoots Tracy in the chest and kills her on the spot over nothing. All these lives ruined for nothing. Just a hot flash of anger changes everything. That's why the Bible says, time out. The anger of man will not accomplish the purpose of God. Now, is that the kind of anger Jesus illustrated here in the temple? No. He had what we would call righteous indignation. And this is in Ephesians 4, verse 26 on your worksheet. It says, in the Bible, you can be angry. There are things that would cause you to be disappointed, to be angry. And this is the kind of anger that is righteous anger that does not attack a person. But instead, it focuses on an issue. It focuses on an injustice. There's actually no indication that when Jesus made this cord of a whip, that he whipped the people. But instead, He waded into what they were doing. They were desecrating worship. And so this is what I want you to understand. There are times that you have permission to be good and angry. You can do the same. You can be good and angry at the same time. That's what Jesus did. As He focused in on attacking the issue, the injustice. Uh, For instance, you should be good and angry at the things that make Jesus angry. I look across the landscape of our culture and I think that 60 million pre-born babies have been killed in our nation. I think that makes Jesus righteously indignant. Right now there's a certain element of our culture who would try to label evangelical Christians as intolerant haters. Just ask the people at Chick-fil-A, they'll give you chapter and verse on it and I think that should rise up within us a sense of righteous indignation. Did you know just a few months ago, it doesn't even make the front page of our news, but over in Sri Lanka, it was another example of how the world is persecuting Christ followers at an unprecedented rate. Did you know on a Sunday in Sri Lanka, there were 13 bombings of worship centers on Sunday? 290 people were killed, 450 people wounded, hardly makes anything but the back pages of the news. It's no big deal. My friend, that should cause within us a sense of rising righteous indignation at the patent unfairness of that. You see, when we live in a world that calls light, darkness, and darkness, light, right, wrong, and wrong, right, There should be a sense of a rising tide of indignation within us. Here's the baseline. The baseline is let what made Jesus angry make you angry. Let's go to number two. There's Jesus' attitude and then His action. What was His action? Jesus forcefully cleared out the things that were preventing people from worship. Jesus went into this outer court. The court of the Gentiles was the outer court of the temple area. And there were all kind of merchants set up there, and they were changing money so that you could pay the temple tax. And they were being charged exorbitant fees to do that. And then they were told that their animals that they bought to sacrifice, they were inadequate. And then they would be sold a defective animal for a ridiculously expensive price. And so now, all of a sudden, your worship experience in the outer court of the Gentiles where you had come to connect to the living God that your heart was drawn to you know that you've been gypped, you've been scammed, you've been ripped off. Would that put you in a good frame of mind for worship? No, so Jesus was livid. And so He took to action. And the Scripture says that this commerce that they were engaging in had become a stumbling block. Now, look on your worksheet and see the warning Jesus gives about a stumbling block. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be thrown and drowned in the depths of the sea. A millstone weighed from three to five hundred pounds. It was not exactly a floaty. So when you put a millstone around somebody you were talking about killing them. So my friends this is what Jesus is warning. If you would make a person stumble you are on thin ice and He warns you not to do this. So Jesus becomes good and angry. He creates a whip of these cords and with a voice like thunder he becomes somewhat of a human tornado. He wades into all these merchant stalls and he begins to drive out the animals. He turns over the merchandising temples and he shouts, you are making my father's house a marketplace. Now why did Jesus have the right to do this? simple. He had the right of ownership. It was his father's house. Now for instance if I go over to your house and I were to observe that your house needed to be cleaned up it would really be inappropriate for me to say oh my goodness uh, your house is dirty let me just kind of buzz in here and clean it all up because it's not my house. Now on the other hand if I go to my house and I find that something is dirty well I'll clean it up as soon as Mary Ruth tells me to. <laughs> yeah, you know, that that's how it works. <laughs> but it's an issue of ownership and what Jesus is declaring here is this is his father's house. So he takes direct action. But here's the underlying point. Be sure that there's no action, there's no attitude. There's nothing in your relationships or your conversations that would be a stumbling block. Preventing people from worshiping Jesus. Because if you have that kind of stumbling block in your life, you are hurting somebody at a level you can't even fathom. Number three, Jesus' claims. Jesus' claims. His attitude was righteous indignation. His action, he cleansed the house. And his claim is amazing. He is God's true temple, he's going to be God's third temple. See, the Jewish officials were angry because Jesus was hurting their merchandising monopoly. So they challenged Jesus. They said, "Uh, you know, why are you doing this? Jesus didn't back down. He said, let me give you the straight of it. You can destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. Well, they were puzzled. They were incensed. They said, are you crazy? It took 46 years to build this temple. How could you rebuild it in three days? And, of course, Jesus was referring to His body and what would happen after the crucifixion. He would have a resurrection. Jesus was also indicating that the Lord's presence had left the Holy of Holies. Look what Jesus says on your worksheet in Matthew 23. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Do you know why? Because God, who is holy, will not dwell in a dirty house. This house of worship had been desecrated. It had been prostituted. You see, it was not a pure place of worship anymore, and God's presence had left. So I want you to understand, Jesus is making a declaration about God's house that you need to understand. Uh, let me give you a basic definition. God's house is simply where people meet God. That simple. God's house is simply where people meet God. Now, you can trace the history of God's house all the way back to the tabernacle. You remember when Moses... Was instructed by the Lord in the wilderness to create a meeting place for God and his people. So he made something called the tabernacle. God gave him precise instructions and he took the Ark of the Covenant. You've seen Indiana Jones in the last, and the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, so here is the Ark of the Covenant in the Shekinah glory of God. It is there hovering over the tabernacle. Did you know that for 500 years the Israelites used the tabernacle, this portable worship tent, for their place to meet God? This is how they met God until 960 B.C. In 960 B.C. what happened? Solomon fashioned the temple. This is called the first temple. So Solomon, he compiled lavish amounts of materials. David helped him. And they built a building that was one of the wonders of the world. He had 150,000 workmen working for seven years. He had an unlimited amount of silver and gold and precious stones, and it was ornate beyond belief. This was the Temple of Solomon, and it stood until 586 BC when the Babylonians came sweeping in and they destroyed most of it, but not all of it. In 586 BC, the Babylonians took off into exile the Israelites. And then 70 years passed, and in 520 B.C., who comes back? Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, and they reestablish the temple. And they call that the second temple. So, the second temple then is less ornate. It doesn't have all the gold and silver and precious stones, but it is the place where they sacrifice. It's the place where the people meet God. 20 years before Jesus is born, do you know what happens? Herod the Great... He decides to do an upgrade on it. And he takes 10,000 people and he improves the temple immensely. So, this is the temple that Jesus walked through. And it was a beautiful place, it was a special place, but it was the place where people met God. Now, in 70 AD, it was destroyed by the Romans. As a matter of fact, we have no idea where the Ark of the Covenant is. All of this went to the wind. But do you realize that right now if you look up Temple Institute, if you Google Temple Institute, do you know what you'll find? There are a group of people in Israel and Jerusalem who for the last 40 years are ready to build the third temple. They have stockpiled all the materials. They have the plans. They have the priests waiting. They have all the implements. They are ready to go because they want to reinstitute the sacrificial system. But you've got to tell them this. Can can I let you in on a big secret? The third temple already exists because the third temple is Jesus. Look at this. Look on Colossians on your worksheet 2 verse 9, for in Jesus dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus is making the declaration that He is the temple of God. Do you remember when Jesus met with the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4. And they were having this debate should they worship in Jerusalem or at Mount Gerizim? Jesus said it's not about places, it's about a person. And I'm the one you worship. Oh my friend, do you know where a holy God meets sinners? In Jesus, the third temple. Well let me take you one step farther. It's good news that you don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go to the Vatican or Mecca to meet with God. You simply go to Jesus. But let me take you to yet something more exciting and exhilarating. It's the fourth temple. Number four, Jesus calling to His followers. Jesus calling to His followers. And the Scripture says that Jesus when He ascended to Heaven, He told His disciples that He was going to the Father. But He would send to them and He details it in John 14, 15, and 16. He would send them His Spirit. Now He had been with them, but from now on He was going to be in them. In Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, what happened? They prayed for 10 days, and the Spirit of Jesus flooded in and filled the 120. Oh, what a moment! Because they were infused with the Spirit of Jesus, and two things happened. The People were filled individually, but they were filled collectively. The church was born. You see, the fourth temple is the church. It is God in us collectively and individually. And let me explain it like this. God is in us. Look at 2 Corinthians 6 on your worksheet. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people That's why the Lord invites you to be a part of His body. We do His work in the world. There's a famous story about a church after World War II that had been bombed in Belgium. And they had a statue of Jesus, and it was intact except the two hands of Jesus had been blown off. So the restoration committee was making plans to restore the hands, and a group of young people on the committee said, let's don't, because aren't we supposed to be the hands of Jesus? Aren't we supposed to be the feet and the voice of Jesus in this fallen world? So they left the hands off. They're off today. Because that is the call of God that we are to do God's work in this world, functioning as His hands and feet, His voice. You know, we did that the other night. Did any of you get to come to team night? It was incredible. Mark did the best job. But can you imagine what happened at team night? Uh, Mark used the collective team of the body of Christ We invited all these young people here, had 1,500 people here, and at the invitation time, 300 young folks made decisions for the Lord. Is that praise God? I mean, what a picture. Right here in this place, that happened. Why? Because we worked together and collectively we did something for the Lord that we could not have done as an individual. That's how the Lord has wired it. That's why it's so important, my friends, that you prioritize being part of the body of Christ. It's more important than a soccer team. It's more important than the lake or the beach or recreation or even more work. I'm telling you, everything in this life will pass. Only what we do for Christ will last. So prioritize your life. Don't fall into the ditch of misprioritizing and miss what God has planned and purposed for you. Be part of the collective body of Christ. And then individually, God is with us. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. I return to it. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You've been bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. This simply means that Jesus is in you, the hope of glory. This was the great resounding theme of the Apostle Paul that Jesus lives in me. And because of that, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm on the winning team. I'm His image bearer. So that's why Paul says it's imperative that through your attitudes, your actions, your conversations, your relationships, your reactions, that you beautifully showcase Jesus in the temple of your life. Because that's where people meet Him. People meet Jesus when they meet you because you're His temple. Well, here's the last thought, the takeaway truth. God wants to keep His temple clean. He wants to keep His temple clean. Remember the college boys who wanted the hog to live in their house? Uh, Some people are content to live in a dirty house, but our Holy Savior will not dwell in a filthy temple. So right now, here's what I want you to understand. Here's the takeaway. Ask Jesus to walk through the house of your heart and clean it up. He is excellent at cleaning house. But the prerequisite is that you've got to surrender to him. You've got to give him access to everything, and then he'll clean it. Let's do that in prayer. Would you pray with me, dear Father? Right now, would you search us? Turn on the inner light of your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, Thank you for sharing worship with us. We trust God has used this broadcast for your spiritual growth and encouragement. If this ministry has touched your life, please let us know. If you'd like to share in the cost of this broadcast, you may send your gifts and support to First Baptist Church. Your partnership with us will help strengthen and extend this ministry and will be greatly appreciated. And remember, when you are at the crossroads, follow Christ.